Hello and welcome to One to Grow On, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts ourselves and our world. My name is Hallie Casey and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey and I'm Hallie's dad and I sit here and listen to her so you don't have to. <laughs> no, they also Actually, have I guess to. if you're listening, you, you are listening, but that's cool. You know what I mean, right? <laughs> Each episode, we pick an area of agriculture or food production that confuses a lot of people and try to get Hallie to explain it. This week, we're talking about the Haber-Bosch process, which I'm pretty sure no one had any questions about, (laughs) but it looks really cool. Um, First, though, we have a quick update. So not too long ago, we had an episode about food waste. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a lot of fun. And as it turns out, our hometown of Austin, Texas, just banned food waste from restaurants. Yeah, it's true. So both dad and me and Catherine are all from Austin. We are Texans. And the city of Austin just passed, is it an ordinance that they passed? Yeah, it's part of the, it's part of the universal recycling ordinance. So the Austin, okay. Austin has a goal of reaching zero waste by 2040. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the steps and uh, restaurants now have the option of either donating extra food to people who need it or uh, composting it um, by sending it to farms or probably it'll become a cottage industry of, of people that come around and collect people's compost. Yeah, I think um, I think Austin has like a municipal compost program that's being like tested in parts of, I think, northeast Austin. There were like select neighborhoods that were able to get municipal compost bins and there were like garbage trucks that would go out and pick up your compost and take it to, I assume, the dump where the giraffes are, but I'm not sure. It could be somewhere else. So, and restaurants that don't comply could face fines between $100 and $2,000. But uh, which kind of sounds crazy, but also I think this will this will be a good idea in the long run. And we will have a link in the show notes for more info. Wow. Well, that's super interesting. Good piece of news about food waste, which we talked about in our first episode. So like Dad said, find more info in the show notes. Eating out just just cost a little bit more, but that's okay. (laughs) Haber Haber Bosch process yes. is a process invented by a guy named Haber. Show over. Yep, that's it. That's the whole show. <laughs> Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> so no, I I read about this and it's it's making ammonia. Yes. Um, and I'm like, okay, we're an agriculture podcast and we're talking about this cool chemistry thing. This is nuts. What's going on? Yeah, this is just for you, just for you and your chemistry brain. That's it. Yeah, no. So the Haber-Bosch process is a very important process in agriculture. So we we use different kinds of fertilizers in most conventional large-scale farming. And the most prevalent one that we use is nitrogen fertilizer. And all nitrogen fertilizer is created through the Haber-Bosch process by taking atmospheric N2 and turning it into ammonia. For those of you who don't know, N2 is nitrogen. Yes, it is two little nitrogens stuck together with triple bonds. Yep, because that's just how they exist. Yep, and they are everywhere in our air, and they don't do much for us in the air. So we humans take it out of the air and put it into the ground via the Haber-Bosch process. And that's good for plants. Yeah, so plants need different kinds of nutrients. There are 17 total. There are 14 mineral nutrients because carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen are taken up non-minerally through the leaves or up 
in the form of water. But there are 14 other ones that are taken up in a mineral form. And the three biggest ones are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And nitrogen is the one that we focus on the most because nitrogen really can increase plant growth. So if you add nitrogen, then you can grow more food, basically. And that means higher crop yields. You don't have to use as much land. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll kind of get into some of that later. But I wanted to start off by talking about the history of the Haber-Bosch process because it's very fascinating. So as you mentioned, it was invented by a guy named Haber. Probably also a guy named Bosch. Actually, it was not invented by a guy named Bosch, funnily enough. Okay. <laughs> he industrialized the process. So the actual chemical process was invented by Haber, um, and then Bosch made it basically possible to produce a lot of fertilizer. Okay. So our story starts in 1898 when a guy named William Crooks, who was a president for the British Association for the Advancement of Science. So William Crooks basically put out a call for folks to start finding solutions in order to manufacture nitrogen, because we at that point understood that plants needed nitrogen in order to grow. And, you know, Britain and the rest of the Western world was experiencing the Industrial Revolution. And so there was this huge population boom. And everyone was worried that we were going to have all these people and no way to feed them. Sounds pretty familiar to today. And so they, they started like telling people, like, we have to find another source of nitrogen so that we can add nitrogen onto our fields. And there was this guy named Haber who was from Prussia. He was pretty rich. He, his mom died. And this is just a fun fact. has nothing to do with the story. His mom died and he got a stepmom whose name was Hedwig Hamburger. Like the owl? Yeah, Hedwig Hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I know. I thought it was such a good name. I wanted to include it. I, mean, I think if we talked about a Hedwig hamburger with Harry Potter fans, they'd be really upset. Oh, my God. I didn't even think <laughs> about that. That makes me so sad. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. So he, he got his doctorate at the age of 23. He was into chemistry and engineering. He was Jewish ethnically and was raised Jewish, but he converted to Christianity in his 20s because he thought that he would be able to get higher academic and or military positions if he was Christian instead of Jewish. Spoiler alert, that does not actually work out that well for him. Oh, really? Yeah. So World War One rolls around and he gets super into creating chemical weapons. He, he was like head of a chemistry section, which was apparently like a very high ranking area of the Prussian army. And his first wife was actually a pacifist. And she committed suicide when he left to go deploy the first chemical bomb, which was chlorine gas, and it killed like 67,000 people. And she shot herself in the heart with his service revolver because she was a pacifist and her husband was like leaving to go deploy the very first chemical weapon. Wow, that's like, I'd hate to have those, I'd hate to have that dinner conversation. I know, right? Can you imagine? Yeah, wow. That's, mm, talk about a mismatch. I know. Actually, his oldest, he had four kids total and his two oldest children also committed suicide. So it was not a great, it was not a great life for Mr. Oh. Haber. But he did, he did come, he won the Nobel Prize and he did come to like academic acclaim, but like his personal life was not great. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, he's invented a, a kind of cool thing, but in the whole like values system sphere of things, uh, well, I feel like he lost out a little bit. 
Yeah, he had, a, he had a rough time. He was super duper into chemical weapons. He like wrote a bunch of papers about how like a death anyway is still a death and like death is necessary in war. So chemical weapons are great. Um, after a lot of people came out saying that they were like immoral, he was like, no, we have to have chemical weapons. So not not 100% a great dude. I mean, I don't think super into chemical weapons is something you put on the Tinder profile. No, no, but it is all over his bio. Swiping left on that one. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so after World War One ended, he continued to be involved in chemical weapon development. Um, he was living in Germany and he got a little bit concerned uh, with the rise of like national socialism, but he was still like, you know, Germany should still have all these chemical weapons. I'm a little bit concerned about it, but I still think that, you know, we should we should continue to, you know, equip this massive army in this big country with all these weapons, which turns out to backfire on him a little bit. So once Hitler took over, he got politely forced out of his position in like in like a super prestigious science organization. Um, and he was kind of surprised by that because he thought that his efforts in World War One and his conversion from Judaism to Christianity would have like people would have been chill with him like sticking around. But they were like, no, you're still a Jew. We still don't like Jews. And he was pretty bummed about that. It kind of seemed like he wanted to just stick around and like continue developing chemical weapons for Nazis and to then be used on Jews, uh, which is not great. It's not great. But the Nazis were like, no, we can't. We don't want any Jews working for us. Even if you do want to stick around and like develop chemical weapons, you still have to like either be murdered or leave. So he had to leave. So <laughs> I mean, it's his life is a string of tragedy yeah. based on uh, high intelligence and, and Poor life choices, it yeah, sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like questionable morals and really high intelligence. So yeah, so he had to leave Germany. He and some of his kids and his third wife left. And in the process of him moving to France, he died. And that's the end. Wow. He did die after he won the Nobel Prize, though. In 1918, he won the prize for developing this process of converting atmospheric nitrogen to ammonia, which is the gaseous form of ammonium. So he won the Nobel Prize. But he also did die, and two of his three wives died, and two of his four children died. So, and a bunch of his family died in concentration camps as well. So, like, all around kind of a bummer of a life. Man, that is rough. Yeah, not great. I can't say I, like, feel bad for him, but it's it's just, it's a tragic story. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. It is a tragic story. So that moves us on to our second dude, Bosch, Carl Bosch. So he was born in Cologne. Um, his family was also rich because it was the 19th century and you had to be rich in order to be a scientist. His family was actually in the industry. His dad, I think, owned a chemical supply plant and he was going to go into metallurgy, but then he was like, no, actually, I'm going to go into chemistry. So he went into chemistry and also studied engineering. His uncle, fun fact, invented the spark plug. Oh, cool. Yeah. He started working at a chemical plant around 1908, and he started collaborating with Haber. So when Haber was trying to to figure out his process, he, I think, consulted with Bosch on like some of the engineering specifics, because Bosch at that point was working in the industry, um, and so he had a bit more understanding of ways to, to develop machinery and to you know develop the other things that you need in order to make this big chemical process happened. Yeah, you gotta. You can't just do it in a lab. You gotta scale it up. Yeah, yeah. And so he started consulting with Haber at that point. And in th 1931, he won the Nobel Prize for basically the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for basically scaling up that 
that Haber process and, you know, making it the Haber-Bosch process where you were able to create a whole lot more of this ammonia. Okay. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he was probably a Nazi, although it does kind of seem like he was not down with anti-Semitism, but he did seem like he was pretty down with genocide. So that sucks. I mean, I feel like if you're a Nazi... And you're down with genocide, then by extension, you're down with anti-Semitism. I know, yeah. There's like some... Even if you don't think you are. <laughs> I know. Even if you like say like, hey, we should be down with anti-Semitism. If you're down for genocide, mm, you're probably down for anti-Semitism. Um, yeah, no. If So he, he died before the Nuremberg trials. But if he had lived, he probably would have been tried at Nuremberg because he was like a big executive in creating chemical weapons. So... There was a lot of other executives at that company that were tried in Nuremberg. Yep, that'll uh, that'll do it. That'll get you on the stand for sure. Uh, he was on the uh, committee that like helped negotiate the Treaty of Versailles. So he offered a plant that had been used to uh, make fertilizer and then was converted to make explosives to the French as like part of that treaty. So he like brought the pro- the Haberbosch process to the French, um, and also like the whole the whole like factory plant to the French as part of as part of the treaty. So that's kind of how the Haber-Bosch process left Germany was in the Treaty of Versailles. So France France gets invaded and and in the deal in the in the peace deal they get fertilizer. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which to be fair is yeah. has had a lot of benefit, but yeah. Well, I think this is a good time to to take a quick break. Yeah. Yeah, I'm only a vote. I am something that you hand wrote. Unless your polling place has computers. <laughs> it's election day. It's like my favorite holiday. I mean, it's not a it's national not a holiday, it should which be. is terrible. It should be It a very much should be. But it's like my favorite day of the year. Happy election day, everyone. Everybody go vote today. Is it really your favorite day of the year? I think it might be. I love it so much. <laughs> You're such a nerd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty great. Um, if they've already voted and they want some other way to help out their community, what else can they do, Dad? Well, you can tell your friends about one to grow on, listener. Uh, yeah! Tweet about us, talk about us on Facebook, share a screenshot, go up to your best friend and say, hey, check out this cool podcast I'm listening to. Take them by the shoulders, look them deep in the eyes and say, you've got to listen to this great podcast. Give them a good hard shake. <laughs> Except don't actually do that. You might get arrested. Yeah, I don't think you get arrested for shaking people. Well, I guess it depends on how hard you shake them. Okay, that's true. <laughs> and what your strength is. That's true. I probably could never get arrested for shaking someone. I can't shake anyone that hard. Well, there you go. The point being, uh, tell your friends about us. Tell everyone about us. And if you don't like us, tell your enemies about us. Yeah. Just get the word yeah. going. Um, we hope that you really like the show, and if that is true, then we hope that you want other people to also like the show, and honestly, that's the best way for us to grow the show and for the show to continue to live, so yeah, please pass the word around. And now, more about the wild, wild world of nitrogen. Yeah, back All to right. the episode. Um, I have a quick, quick, fun nature fact. Um, yeah, please. So... Okay, so nitrogen, I think most people know that nitrogen is, and we said earlier, is the is the most plentiful gas in our atmosphere. It makes up about 78% of the air we breathe, and, you know, we couldn't survive without it because there'd be too much oxygen. But on Titan, uh, Saturn's largest moon, 
It's mm-hmm. 98% nitrogen atmosphere. Wow. And it's the only moon in our solar system known to have a dense atmosphere. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Imagine how much fertilizer we can make from that atmosphere. Right, right. I think uh, obviously that means if we go to if we go to Titan, we could uh, make some ammonium and do some farming. To jump immediately to like extractionist policies. Perfect. <laughs> so okay, so the a little bit about the science behind the process. So it uses methane and high pressure and high temperatures and this atmospheric nitrogen to create ammonium. Um, so it takes CH four and N two and creates NH three. So it breaks up the methane and then you have leftover carbon and it takes all the hydrogen from the methane. And then using like really, really high pressure, it breaks those N2 triple bonds, which are like, that's a really intense bond. It's really hard to break. So it requires a lot of energy to break those triple bonds. And it matches those ends up with some H's and then you get ammonia. Hooray. Hooray. And it smells really bad if you've ever cleaned anything with ammonia. Yeah, that's true. It does smell bad. So in just 70 years, get this, in just 70 years, there has been a six-fold increase in U.S. corn yields thanks to nitrogen, thanks to available nitrogen fertilizer. Yeah. There's an estimate that about half of our food that's grown is grown because of nitrogen fertilizer. So one of the things that I read Mm -hmm. is that this is, uh, and when I say I read, I mean, I mean, I did the Wikipedia research (laughs) for this. Um, I, it's responsible for like a population boom that started just a little after the turn of the century mm-hmm. where we have, you know, had 1.2 billion people. And since we're able to grow so much more food, so much more efficiently, we're able to sustain it with, you know, 7 billion that we have now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, the, the correlation causation is typically kind of difficult to parse, but it's pretty clear that if we did not have nitrogen fertilizer, then a lot more people would have starved and we would not have had the population that we did in the first half of the 20th century. And that population would not have been able to grow the same way. Um, and we can talk in another episode about the Green Revolution. But basically, the, the Haber-Bosch process and the Green Revolution are two moments in agriculture that spurred on population increases. Which are just statements of fact. They, you know... If you can put a good value or a negative value on that, I'm sure. Yeah, so so we can kind of talk about some of the trade-offs because <laughs> there are there yeah, are there are for sure trade-offs with the Haber Bosch process. So you mean it's not just a 100% positive story, starting with a it, not, it's not. <laughs> see. So like I said, like in order to create this ammonia, we have to break nitrogen triple bonds, which have a lot of energy. Right. Um, and that requires a lot of energy to do. And so get this, this one process, the Haber-Bosch process, converting methane and N2 into NH3, this one process takes up takes up 2% of all the world's energy. Wow. I mean, that's, given the global scale, that's a lot. It's huge. Uh, it's huge. Talking about, you know, what it takes to generate that much energy. Yeah. That can contribute to sucking up national resources, contributing to global warming and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge amount of energy. I mean, if you think about like you driving your car times 7 billion, planes, all other industry activities like creating your cell phone, creating everything that we use in the world, the electricity that runs through your house, 2% of all of these things, just 2% is one single process 
in like it doesn't even include like the transport of your fertilizer, applying fertilizer. It doesn't include any of the other agricultural things. It doesn't include making the machinery to to do the Haber Bosch process. It's just that one process. It's crazy. Well, well, go on. Tell us about the other trade-offs. So, so it does have some environmental negative effects. So one, of course, it, it does use a lot of energy, but there's also something called eutrophication. Do you know that word? I have never heard eutrophication. Well, I know you have because I've talked to you about it before, but maybe you don't remember <laughs> eutrophication. Definitely not. I'm sure I was listening. Absolutely. Sure, Dad. Sure. <laughs> so like I said, there's there's three nutrients that plants need most heavily, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And we apply nitrogen most because nitrogen is water soluble. So potassium is very available in most soils. Uh, phosphorus kind of sticks in the soil. So when you apply it, it doesn't really move. It just stays in the soil. But nitrogen, if you apply it and then it rains, it'll all move out with the water. This has led to a lot of environmental issues. Namely, you end up with too much nitrogen in bodies of water. So is this, I have I think I have heard of this phenomenon. Is this just like from runoff? Yeah, so it, it can it can be runoff from either rain or irrigation. Okay. The water will move off of a field and it will carry this nitrogen with it. And it will like move it into a lake or a river um, nearby. So what that means is that you have this excess of, of minerals. And like I said before, like nitrogen cr- makes plants grow. So if you have all this nitrogen, then plants will grow. <laughs> So you'll have either an excess of plant or algal growth in a lake or a river, um, and it can it can be harmful. It can be toxic. The process of eutrophication typically means that you don't have as much oxygen, so it can be an issue for fish who need to breathe oxygen through their gills, and if the plants are taking up all of the dissolved oxygen, then your fish will die. Um, it can make your water taste bad. It can make your water a lot harder, which makes it harder to use it for municipal purposes. It, I mean, it, it can be bad for tourism because water will look nasty and people won't want to go places. There's some statistics that we found that about 50%, um, give or take, of all lakes on the whole planet are eutrophied. 50%. Wow. That's a lot. That doesn't sound that doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't sound good. It sounds really bad actually. Yeah. Now now I kind of feel bad that I have such easy access to food. Yeah, right. Right? So according to the International Lake Environment Committee, every lake that they have studied um in the past 50 years is more eutrophied than it was before. So there's like according to this committee who's studying lakes, there are no lakes that are unaffected. Wow. I can imagine like some some uh resort that's on a lake somewhere, uh, would say we don't want agriculture around here because we don't want this to happen to our lake or you know a community that survives around a lake or something. For sure, for it's sure, like that. Wow, I imagine. Yeah, like you said, it's it's not good. It's not good for the water. That means it's not good for fish um, or other wildlife, and that's just. Mm. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's not. It's really not great. Um, it's a real environmental issue that is prevalent. Like I said, like everywhere on the planet. In the meantime, I'm going to go to the grocery store and go buy some fresh vegetables. I know. Yeah. (laughs) So I would say that, like, if you have a lawn and you fertilize your lawn, consider this because the fertilizer that you buy, whether it's like miracle Grow or whether it's, you know, it says fertilizer on it or whatever it is, it has ammonium in it. And if you apply it and then it rains, it's going to go into your local streams, your local lakes. It will run off and it might run off even if it doesn't rain because nitrogen is very movable. It's very water soluble and it can just move very easily. 
So, so what, would you, what would you put on your lawn instead? Compost, Dad. Compost. Every oh, episode, compost. we're coming back to compost. Got to compost. Compost. Right. Compost for the win. I know this. This whole podcast should be re- renamed like Compost Hype Squad. Compost Hype Squad. All right. So I'm I'm in a play right now, and we have uh, some special tables where we serve food to patrons. And I've been thinking about this as we've been throwing food away at the end of the night. Uh-huh. Um, it, it just makes me think about all of this stuff now. And I don't know, because compost, I don't have anything to do with it. It's just, you know, another thing I have to deal with. Yeah. But it sounds pretty important. Yeah, you should totally compost. You should do it. You've got a lawn. You could get a compost bin. They're not hard to manage. Okay. <laughs> so I guess this affects people as well. Yeah, it definitely affects people because... I mean, the, the, basically the trade-off that we're looking at is food now or like a healthy planet down the road. Like that's kind of like the trade-off that we're looking at. So there's like right. this huge environmental justice aspect to this because you you can't just say like, okay, well, let's just stop using nitrogen fertilizer because then we would have 50% less food, right? And that's not an option because people have to eat and we would have like mass starvation and Yeah, and if we stop growing all this food, then that's like a huge... It's humanitarian issue. Yeah, yeah. You'll have like widespread famine. But if you keep growing all this food and we keep having uh, population booms, it's a huge humanitarian problem. Exactly. Yeah, it's this It's this really, really difficult environmental justice issue that depending on who you talk in the industry, like there are different solutions that people propose. And nitrogen fertilizer is pretty much never part of the picture when you're talking about solutions. So there's three solutions that are kind of proposed by different areas of the industry. One of them is called closing the yield gap, which is where you basically make small pieces of land more productive. So this is this includes things like precision agriculture. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. I have never heard of that term. It sounds like a little um, small military team. You're like military. This is going to be a precision <laughs> strike. We're going to run go in. in like just... we have to harvest the carrots today, and they like run in with their jackets. <laughs> uh, no, but did did you hear about? Um, I think like two years ago, there was this farm in the news that was entirely run by robots that was in the Netherlands. No, that sounds awesome, though. Yeah. So so this is like the idea of precision agriculture. It's like you use big data and you use complex machinery in order to know exactly what's happening on every like square foot of a farm. Okay. So like across a farm, you're going to have like slight soil variations. You're going to have different slopes. Um, you're going to have different levels of organic matter. There's going to be like small variations across a farm. And so you basically take uh, GIS data, which is like geographic data. And then you also take very specific remote sensing data. And you're able to really precisely change maybe how much fertilizer you add, how much water you add, the conditions around each specific plant instead of each specific field. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> the idea of it is you're kind of decreasing the imbalance between nitrogen applied and nitrogen used. So currently we lose about 40% of the nitrogen we apply worldwide. So you're you're bringing that down and you're trying wow. to make your nitrogen applications much more specific um, so that you're able to apply less and you're losing less. Okay, so so you're still using ni- nitrogen fertilizer, just not in this blanket way where 
where most of it runs off just to the amount that you need. Yeah, so that's part of it. There's other things as well, like, you know, really precise watering and, and things like this. Okay. And it, basically, the idea behind this is if your land is is more productive, then you're, one, able to conserve more land. So, like, we often clear forest land or savanna land in order to put in agriculture so we wouldn't have to do that. In order to increase our production, we'd be able to get more food per unit of land. Okay. And you would also, you, you would be using this, like, 2% of the worldwide energy much more efficiently. So while you're still using something that's, like, highly energy intensive to create, you're using it more efficiently. So theoretically, you would use less. Although if we grow more food, then you would not be using less. You would just be using it more efficiently, if that makes sense. Yep. Okay. Good. Um, so that's like one of the strategies. There's also improved breeding where we make individual plants more productive, um, which we did in the 1960s. And there's ideas that we can continue this improved breeding and continue to make each plant grow better. Um, and then there's also, of course, decreasing the food waste slash food loss gap. You know, we currently lose or waste 30% of our food globally. So if we can just, you know, not do that, then we would have a whole lot more food. Um, and this also includes um, decreasing meat consumption, because when you eat meat, you're eating all of the food that the meat had to consume. So you're eating like, mm-hmm. so you're basically what you're consuming required like a lot more energy to create than if you right. just ate the food that the meat ate, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the Haber-Bosch process. That's a little background on where our nitrogen fertilizer comes from and why plants need nitrogen. Um, yeah. If you have any follow-up questions, you can find us on Twitter. Reach out to us. You can find us other places too, but Twitter is where we are most active. I don't have anything else to say. Um, eat more plants. Yeah. Eat more plants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not evangelizing we're just educating yeah that's a that's a great tagline i love that not evangelizing right. just educating thanks for listening to this episode of one to grow on if you would like to support the show you can rate and review us on itunes or consider donating to our patreon at patreon.com slash one to grow on pod if you'd like to connect with us, find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or at our website at onetogrowonpod.com. This show is hosted by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. It's produced by Catherine Arjay and Hallie Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free, and our show art is by Mariah Coley. Be sure to check out the next episode in two weeks. Until then, keep on growing. Bye, everybody.